Let's get into uh, God's word here. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. You can always probably just open up your phone and click on your little app and do your thing. But I'm a paper, paper and ink guy myself. We're going to be in Psalm 98 uh, momentarily. I'll explain what we're doing here um, in just a, in just a bit. But let me read this psalm. And uh, we'll pray and we'll, we'll dive in. says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Would you pray with me? God, we stand in awe. The type of king that you are. I think in Israel, people reading this psalm would have no clue how you would truly end up fulfilling it. We read of a great king who comes to make all the wrong right. and We read of fireworks, as it were, going off and all the universe peering in in celebration. And yet when the king truly does arrive, Christmas... That's not what we see, is it? You come low. You come discreet. You come humble. You come meek. You come not to crush, but to be crushed. You come not to lord it over us, but to serve and lay your life down. God, the the world knows no king like our king. No king steps down from his throne to serve his loyal subjects, let alone to serve his enemies and make them friends. God, we celebrate this great work, the incarnation, the sending of your son, the true king during this time of the year. And we remember afresh what it is that you have done for us and, and, and why. Why we sing. Why we are filled with joy. Why you're worthy of all praise. 
you left the glory you had with the Father to take on flesh and come after a wayward people and love them even to the point of death and all of that so you could bring us home. So we thank you for the rescue operation that began Christmas Day or really years and years and millennia before but really set in motion there in Bethlehem. And God, we ask this morning that you would help us to see afresh the glory, the wonder of what you've done and to taste a little bit more of the good news of great joy that is this child in a manger, Christ, our Lord and our King. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Um, okay, let me begin by making mention of the fact that though I just read from Psalm 98 here, I'm actually not going to be spending much time in it at all. Uh, I'm not going to be taking it verse by verse, not going to be dealing with the ins and outs like I usually would. This morning, I actually had it on my heart to do something a little bit different. Um, I wanted to do a sermon that kind of served as a reflection on uh, little bits of that old Christmas carol entitled Joy to the world. Perhaps you've heard it. Perhaps you've sung it one, two, three, a hundred times, I imagine. Um, it's a hymn with lyrics written by one of the more premier hymn writers of all time. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, Isaac Watts. He was uh, heralded by many as the father of English hymnody. Um, this carol, as it's come to be, Joy to the World, was originally published in a book of poems by Isaac Watts uh, on the Psalms of David, and he was trying to give a, a Christological spin to these Old Testament Psalms. In other words, he was trying to show how uh, uh, this stuff happening in the Old Testament was really leading to, pointing towards Jesus. Uh, interestingly enough, Joy to the World was not intended merely to be a Christmas poem of sorts. It wasn't just supposed to be something that you broke out, dusted off around this time of year. Uh, it was supposed to be always a celebration of the king and his reign and his coming. And yet what happened... Uh, through the course of history, about maybe over a century later, I think it was, a guy put Isaac Watts's words to the melody that we now know as Joy to the World and released it sometime around Christmas time. And as it happened, it stuck. It struck a chord, so to speak. And so ever since, Joy to the World has been understood by us as a Christmas carol. And we sing it in celebration of the birth, the arrival of our King uh, Jesus the Christ. And here's the reason why in particular I thought, man, why not this year? Let's, let's do a reflection on this carol. It, it's because uh, this is actually the 300th year kind of anniversary since he penned those words uh, back in 1719. So a way of celebrating, a way of uh, rejoicing in what God has done through uh, this carol, and especially, obviously, through the Son who is heralded in this carol. I thought, let's just settle in uh, for a moment on that, on a few words, actually, in, in that um, Christmas carol. But then you're asking still, perhaps, why read Psalm 98? And I answer that question. Well, why read Psalm 98 to begin? Well, I just said uh, Joy to the World began as kind of this book of poems on the book of Psalms. Well, Psalm 98 was the one that stood behind this hymn, this carol. 
Uh, And I don't think it's all that hard to see uh, how and why that is the case. In particular, if you look at verse 4, what do you read there in Psalm 98? Uh, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sounds to me like joy to the world, the Lord is come, right? I mean, that's it. That's it. But real quick. Look with me a little bit more closely at Psalm 98. I want to show you what Watts, I think, is doing here. Psalm 98, really, if you read it with me, listened in to it carefully, it's this grand celebration of the universal kingship and reign of Yahweh, or God, Yahweh as he's known there in Israel. It's cosmic in its scope. This king, if you notice, he's going to restore all things. He's going he's to bring in righteousness. He's going to bring in equity. He's going to save his people and he's going to ultimately fill them with joy and new songs and all this. And all creation is going to kind of partake in the celebration. Singing along. So we see verse 1, people are singing a new song. And then verses 5 and 6, they're breaking out every instrument they have. Like we do this at our house sometimes. We have a bin full of instruments. And every now and then when we feel like, you know, subjecting ourselves to torture, we let the kids have the bin and go crazy. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going on. Get the lyre. Get, get, I don't even know what a lyre is. Get the trumpet. Get the horn. Let's start blowing. Let's start playing a new song. And then verse 7, you see that the sea and every creature within it is roaring with delight. And verse 8, the rivers are clapping their hands to the beat. And we could say as well, it would seem that the hills are alive with the sound of music, right? And not because, uh, not because, uh, what's her name? My goodness. Julie Andrews is, is singing and twirling, right? That's, that's not why the hills are alive with the sound of music. They're alive with the sound of music because the king has come. Because the king is here. And we're told in the last verse there what this king will do when he arrives. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Hence, joy. Now, Isaac Watts, rightfully so, connects the dots between this psalm and Jesus Christ and the arrival of this king here in Bethlehem. We know the way that God will ultimately step into this cosmic kingship. We know the way that God will ultimately bring justice and righteousness, salvation and joy. And it's going to be by stepping into time in the person, coming down himself, as it were, in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why, I don't know if you remember, but when the shepherds are out in the field there just outside of Bethlehem and the angel first announces what's going on, here's what he says in Luke 2, 10 through 11. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, all this joy, all this song, all this stuff that you're seeing uh, that's going to come in Psalm 98, and you're getting excited, and everybody's supposed to participate in rejoicing. All of that. Now, the angels are saying, it's here. 
We bring you good news of great joy. The Savior is here. The Lord is here. The King has come. Now, then, with all of this in view, all I wanted to do here is just simply read you the first verse of uh, this old Christmas carol, Joy to the World, and I'll kind of chart my path forward from there, let you know what we're going to do. But here's how the carol begins. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature Sing. The title for this morning's message, you may have noticed on the handout or in the bulletin, is Prepare Him Room. And obviously, you can tell, you don't need me to point this out, but I ripped that straight from the carol there. And I did that for a particular reason. Um, as I read the words to this first verse, uh, something of a, a dissonance. Uh, a sort of uh, tension kind of caught my eye. And I want to draw that out for you here for a moment. If we were to identify what this verse is kind of, and even really the whole carol as a whole is, is, is getting at, we see it's striking this note of joy, right? Like the king has come, joy to the world. I mean, the Lord has come. Right. Let let heaven and earth sing. It's it's this incredible note, note of joy. God has come down in the flesh. God is going to save. God is going to rule and reign in the way that kings should. He's going to make all wrong. Right. So you get this note of joy that struck significantly. And yet. And yet here's here's what caught my eye and set me to wonder in spite of that. In spite of the glory, the splendor, the joy, the, the wonder of it all, you and I, it seems, still need to be encouraged to prepare him room in our hearts. As if we would otherwise be a bit reluctant to do so. You, you feeling me? My question was, wait a minute, if the king is here, if he's come to save if he's come to make all the wrong right, if he's come to fill and restore and all of this, who in the world isn't going to make him room? Why do we need to be told, make him room, as if we were otherwise reluctant to do it? Why the exhortation? Why the encouragement? Why does it seem as if there's going to be some pushback? And so the hymn is saying, listen, prepare him room in your hearts. What's that all about? On the one hand, joy and salvation and blessing. On the other hand, there seems to be reluctance and resistance. And I think probably we know how the Christmas story plays out. And I imagine that that Mr. Watts was probably evoking this sort of imagery with this line in his song in his song. But we know that, you know, when Jesus, uh, is, you know, the night of his birth comes and they're there in Bethlehem. We read Luke 2, 7, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no place or there was no room for them in the inn. 
I think this tension is being evoked even in the line of this song, song, that even though he comes to bring joy and salvation, we are going to push against it. There's going to be no place. We're going to be tempted to kind of say, no room here. You see, that's not just an incidental detail about the lodging, you know, is stuff going on for the, 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 this little family here. That's not what's had. This is a significant detail. It's, in other words, it's kind of like a parable of the, the bigger problem. Namely, that the king has come and no one cares. The king comes down to do all that we read in Psalm 98 and no one notices. Life just kind of goes on. Oh, sorry, we can't make any room for you. There's nothing special here. We'll just send you out with the animals. There's no space. There's no place. John, in his gospel, Puts it most pointedly for us. John 1, 9 through 11. He says this. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the tension being brought out. I think in when every heart prepare him room. There's going to be something in us that's going to just want to overlook it, go somewhere else, find something else. There's got to be another solution. Surely the king would look a different way. No, no, no. Psalm 98 is coming into fulfillment. The most unexpected, the most surprising way. Don't miss it. Now, so what am I going to do with this? I just simply want to ask two questions with regard to the idea of preparing him room. First, why don't we? Why don't we prepare him room? What's going on with that? Why does this happen? And then secondly, why should we prepare him rooms? I'm going to spend probably the majority on the first and we'll land on on the second with whatever time remains. Why should we prepare him room? But first, why don't we? Why don't we prepare uh, room? Why do we need to be encouraged as if we're otherwise reluctant and resistant? If I were to give a little subheading to this first point, I I would put it this way. The deceptive allure of front door joys. I know that doesn't make much sense yet, but hopefully it will. Why don't we? The deceptive allure of front door joys. Now, with the question here, I'm just trying to make a little bit more sense of the dissonance for us. Why do we need to be encouraged? What's happening? And if I were, if hopefully you'll, you'll allow me just to simply make a statement. Um, and, and I think that your experience will, will um, uh, validate it as well. But it seems to me that uh, we always look at your schedule, look at the way that you handle your, uh, your, your time and your energy and the way that you arrange your life, your priorities. It seems to me that we always make space in one way or another for the things that we think will bring us joy. That we're always kind of moving and working. You know, maybe you're planning that vacation. Maybe you are working hard, but it's because you think you're going to get retirement or this or that. Maybe you're, you're arranging things to get at the stuff that you think will bring you joy. We're all doing that. We all make room for that in our hearts. I don't have time to make the case. I'm just going to lay it out there. And if you'll grant it to me, then here's the bottom line when it comes to this tension. about Why don't we prepare him room? I think it's because if we're honest, sometimes we just don't think joy is going to be found there. 
manger in Bethlehem? Little baby? What is that? I want, you know, a new game system. I want a new car. I want, you know, whatever. There's the joy. Come on. Get me that relationship. Get me that whatever. Baby in the manger 2,000 plus years ago. Come on. We just don't often think that's where joy is going to be found. Our hearts are already attached to too many other things. We've crowded out the king, as it were. There's no room left. Now, I'm going to make a distinction throughout this sermon between what I would call a front door joy and a back door joy. I'll just explain the first, and I think the second will be self-explanatory as we go on. What do I mean by front door joy? I simply mean those things that uh, immediately appear kind of obvious to you. They, 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 they promise immediate joy. They seem tangible and right in your face. And yes, of course, if I get that, then I'll be happy. It's kind of the cliches that sadly, so sadly, we all keep running down that, that wide path that leads to destruction. We're just going, whether it's the money or it's the sex or it's the job or it's, you know, and we'll talk about some of these things, but those are the front door sort of things. The things just right there for the taking promise immediate relief. And if I just get it, yes. And there's all sorts of these things in this world just knocking at the door of our hearts. I was realizing just the other day, I mean, this is essentially what every ad that's ever been created is designed to do. You turn on the TV. This is what they're trying to do. Knock on your heart and tell you, here's why you need to make room for this product or this thing, because this will bring you joy. In fact, we were watching a show the other day and a new commercial came on with uh, that actress, Jennifer Lawrence. And she's got, you know, she's looking all fancy and and fly and whatnot. And all the girls are supposed to want to be like her. And she's selling a, a, a perfume, a fragrance. And wouldn't you know what the name of the fragrance is? My man, do you have some? I'll get you some for Christmas. (laughs) Joy, as if a few spritzes of this is going to suddenly turn you into a whatever and satisfy your inner longings. And, you know, every, you know, man and woman's going to look and go, wow. And when you walk by, it's going to be like little pixie dust kind of flowing off your thing. And you know what I'm saying? And I get it. it. It might not be perfume that draws you. It might not be perfume that's knocking on the door of your heart, promising joy to you there at the front door, tempting you to bring it on in. It, it could be something else. It, it, you're going to have to fill in the blank yourself. It may be success in your job that you think will do it. You know, if I, if I get that raise, if I get those, whatever, I, I, I get people to notice me, I do that, then I will feel like I've arrived. I'll have joy. I feel noticed. I feel worth something. It may be that uh, you think it's going to be a relationship or starting a family, having a kid, whatever it may be. It, may, it might be money. It might be that you just financial security or perhaps the status that it brings when you get certain comforts and certain luxuries. It may be sex, it may be drugs, it may be beauty. Like if I could just shrink that waistline, my sorrow would be over. Why do you think we struggle with these things? It's because we think that they will bring us joy, right? Why? I won't go. Why count the calories and worry so much and sometimes get into trouble with disorders and things? It's because it's going to bring me joy. But we'll get there in a moment. 
I don't know what it is for you, but I know there's something knocking on the door. Threatening Jesus's place in your heart, even this Christmas season. And I don't know what it is, but I know something else about it as well. If it's not Jesus, if it's not the gospel, if it's not coming back to God and in through him, it will not work. It will not work. The ironic thing, and we could play this out, and I'll give you a few examples here just to show you. We could do this all day, though. But the ironic thing is that those things that promise to, 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 to fill us, even as we kind of fill our hearts with too much stuff and we crowd out the king, we have no room for him, uh, those things that we fill our hearts with, at the end of the day, we still feel the sort of emptiness That's the irony in it all is we're so full. There's no room for the savior. And yet we're also so empty. The stuff that promises joy at the front door leaves us broken and with a house a mess when it's all said and done. It's the deceptive allure of front door joys. And I think in our sane moments, we all feel it. We all know it. We all have tasted it. We've seen, man, this isn't enough. We've been burglarized. <laughs> this thing said whatever it needed to do to get into our house and it runs off with our stuff in the night. We've been swindled. We've been hoodwinked. We've been lied to. We've been deceived. We're full and yet we're empty. Let me give you just a few examples just so you can kind of wrap your mind around this and you'll have to fill in the details for your own your own situation. But let's take example number one here, the idea of joy or finding joy in in, in maybe uh, your work and success and this or that. And if you've ever done this, and I think especially with guys, but you know, with a, with a girl, who knows what it is. It could be the same sort of thing with work in an office. It could be motherhood and your vocation, whatever it is. We're kind of find, trying to find joy in that and success in that. And when it's going well, I mean, when it's going well, life is good. And you may even feel the inklings, the beginnings of what you would call joy. As you get those pats on the back and people notice and people are, maybe you're getting that raise and you walk through the office and the young guys want to be like you or whatever it is. But then when it goes bad, it goes really bad. It will let you down. When they make that new hire and all of a sudden the guy's got better numbers than you. And, and he's smarter than you. And he's more up to speed with the latest technology or whatever because he, he came out of college, you know, uh, just recently. And he's, he's, he's ready to go. And you're feeling, though, though you wouldn't say it because you've got to put up the front, you're feeling threatened inside. And that which promised joy to you and perhaps delivered it momentarily, all of a sudden, it's just a bait and switch. You're on the hook. And there's not joy, there's not fullness, there's anguish. This, in many ways, to give you a biblical example here, would be what I think is happening with Herod around the time that Christ is coming into the world. I mean, King Herod was there, right? And he, he, he so desperately wanted to be received by the Jewish people as their king. He was set in place there by Rome to, to kind of rule and reign over them uh, uh, on their behalf. And he was always trying to get the people to, 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 to receive him. Because he wasn't a Jew. He was uh, an Edomite. He was an Edomite, I believe is what that is. He was from Esau, right? And so he was trying so hard. And then all of a sudden, what did the Magi come uh, into Jerusalem? They're saying, 
They say, oh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Where is he? And Herod hears about this. And how do you think he feels? That is an unsettling announcement for a man whose identity and joy has been wrapped up in his position, his work, his, his, his status as king there. The arrival of this true king, the Christ, is in fact a threat to him. And he starts to unravel. He starts to lose his mind. That's why he's slaughtering babies in case they may be the one. Because he feels like his life, his joy, it's, it's, it's in jeopardy. When he hears the news, we're told in Matthew 2, 3, he was troubled. And later in verse verse 16, he becomes furious. I'm the king. That's where my joy will be found. How's that working for you, Herod? You're not going to find joy in that. I mean, there's another Herod later. You remember in the book of Acts, perhaps, where he finally gets the people to go, Whoa, the voice of a God. And not of a man. And God just strikes him dead in that moment. Because he's receiving it. Excited. And just boom. Done. I mean even if you get it. It's momentary. It's fleeting. It lets you down. And it burglarizes you. And leaves you with nothing. To give a modern example of this whole idea. With work and things. Megan and I. I watched a movie a while back called The Company Men. It was just on Netflix. I was like, all right, we'll try it. Uh, and um, it was about these guys who, in the wake of a recession, lose their job. And it kind of follows along with them and, 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 and portrays kind of how they handle it, how they face it, what they do about it. And one of the guys can't handle it. One of the guys doesn't handle it. One of the guys feels like his life is over because of it. And there's this there's this scene, uh, kind of ominous scene where it's dark, it's nighttime. And he's, you know, he used to be up on the top of the food chain here. Now he's been booted to the curb. They won't take him back. He's out in the night. He's hurling rocks and obscenities at his old building. One of his one of his old co-workers finds him there, you know, rolls up on him, starts talking. What is going on? And here is what he says. He says, Listen, Sarah, that's his, his daughter's name. Sarah's tuition for Brown is due. I write the check. I can't make the mortgage. And you know the worst part? The world didn't stop. The newspaper still came every morning. The automatic sprinklers shut off at 6. And Jeff next door, he still washed his car every Sunday. My life, this is a key statement, my life ended. And you know, Nobody noticed. What he is doing there is exposing where what he had let into his heart, where he thought his life and identity and joy would be found. So it was so attached to his work that when work went, as it inevitably will in one way or another, he felt like his life went with it. And he ultimately ends up taking his life. But that's the idea. Man, when you're on the top eating caviar with kings, it feels great. But when you're in the bottom, you don't know where to turn. My life ended. He still has a family. He can't see it. He still has, he still's breathing. He's still got health. He's still got, 
can't see it. My life ended. My joy betrayed me. That's the sort of thing that happens. I'll give you uh, another couple examples focusing on, on, on one more way that we might do this. We might try to find joy, I said, in our money, right? In our stuff, in our possessions. We might crowd out the king by hoping in earthly stuff, hoping in money. It, 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 it comes right in through the front door, feels good. Come on in. Let's, let, 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 you know, let's make the house look beautiful. Let's have all the friends and family come over and think that it's awesome and everything's going well for us until it's not. It never quite gets there. We do well. I'll give you a biblical example and then I'll just give you another modern example. Uh, we do well to consider Judas at this point. You remember Judas's story and you remember his demise. Hopefully, perhaps. You remember how he betrays Jesus to the Jewish authorities there in, in Israel for 30 pieces of silver. Just get me the money. And then when it's done, when the transaction is complete... Uh, This is the thing that I want to to stick out in your mind. It's not as if he goes, Eureka, I found it. I have joy. No, he comes back to the very people that gave him the money. And he says, I don't. What was I thinking? This didn't do it for me. This didn't get there. This didn't change anything. I don't feel good about it. And he just throws the money back on the floor in in the temple. He doesn't even want it. And that, that's the bait and switch of the whole thing. We think it will promise, it, it will bring us joy and it. It actually brings the opposite. Now to give you a modern example, we were, I'll just draw from another movie here. We, we were watching The Grinch the other day, yesterday, in fact. And uh, as grumpy and grouchy as that guy, you've seen the one with Jim Carrey, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, this time of year, and and as grumpy and grouchy as he was, he was on to something, right? You remember his whole beef with the, the folks down in Whoville or whatever? The, the whole thing is, listen, guys, what in the world is up with this? You keep every year. It's all about the gifts and the stuff. And he says, you want to know where all your stuff ends up? It ends up with me in the dump, like a week or two later. And then you just set your sights on the next thing and the next thing. And you just keep it never fills you. And yet you keep thinking that it will. Interestingly enough, Jim Carrey himself has actually been saying similar things as of late, along with some quite out there stuff. But um, I want to read to you a few a few quotes, because though I think he's 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 gone the wrong way with it. He's on to something. Okay, here's a few things from uh, an interview with him and and then just another quote that I uh, came across. He says this, I believe that I had to become famous and get all the stuff that people dream about and accomplish a bunch of things that look like success in order to give up my attachment to those things. You spend the first half of your life acquiring and adding, thinking you can add to yourself and it looks great when you have a cool car and nice clothes and you've done something that people admire, but it can never fulfill you. It can never make you happy. Another place he's quoted as saying this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. (laughs) You see, as long as we're not there, we keep thinking that when we get there, it will be. We'll find it. But he's saying, listen, I got there. And then I said, that's it? 
Uh oh. And now he's gone some interesting directions with it. But he's at least on to the fact that the answer is not found in those things. Money and stuff. It's not going to work. It's not going to fill. And like I said, I could just keep multiplying examples. But I think you could see the fundamental principle is essentially the same. Joy, true and lasting joy is not going to come in through the front door. It's not going to be this easy, tangible, immediate, whatever thing. It, it never really works that way, even though we're always drawn to it. Instead, what we see at Christmas time is that the joy we're all seeking, deep and fulfilling joy, true and lasting joy, is coming in, as it were, through the back. And that leads me to the second question that I wanted to deal with, namely, why should we prepare him room? I'll put another subheading on this one. The surprising satisfaction of a backdoor joy. The deceptive allure of a front door joy. The surprising satisfaction of a backdoor joy. Why should we prepare him room? We'll come to that question in a moment. That's kind of where we'll close. But let me let me uh, kind of fill out the story of Christmas for us here. So. While the world is busy and distracted, chasing all manner of of things, trying to let everything we can in through the front door. Let me get the money. Let me get the the girl. Let me get the boy. Let me get the whatever, the job, the career. You keep whatever it is for you. We're all chasing and going after this. And we have since Adam. While we're doing all of that. God's answer to the big problem, God's answer to what we're longing for actually slips in through the back door, almost undetected, as it were. No one notices. No one pays any mind to it. No one seems to care. I think that's the point of the angel's announcement. At least that's one angle you could come at it from. It's almost as if, I mean, you've got to understand, heaven has been anticipating this moment. Heaven is excited about this moment. The king is coming. The, 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 the curse is going to be overturned. God is going to make all the wrong right. He's going to make all things. New. This is amazing. Heaven is anticipating and excited. And earth, you just get this, just crickets. And nobody cares. And so the angels, it's as if they're saying, this can't be. We cannot permit this. The, the, the king of kings is here. The son of God is here. And no one's turned out to celebrate, but perhaps a few animals. This, 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 this is. We've got to get somebody in that room. We've got to get somebody with a little birthday hat on their head and a little, you know, thing to blow and, and somebody to celebrate. And so they show up to these shepherds there in the field. And it's as if they kind of say, what are you doing out here? Get in that stable and rejoice. I remember when um, we lived in Philly, I went to seminary in Philadelphia and um, when Megan was nine months pregnant with Isabella, 
uh, thereabouts, and we were trying to, we were walking around downtown, okay, um, trying to kind of, you know, get the juices flowing, so to speak, trying to get things in motion because uh, nothing had happened to that point, really. And so we were going for a walk all around. We were in Rittenhouse Square there downtown, and, and, and all of a sudden the news shows up. Like with a person with a microphone, a big old camera, you know, in your face and bright lights because it was nighttime. And they're, they're kind of coming up and they, they come up to Megan and they go, hey, hey, did you hear? We're like, what in the world is going on right now? Is there a crime? And it's Philly. <laughs> Who got shot? <laughs> but anyways, uh, so they come up and they go, hey, did you hear about the, 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 the prince was born, the royal prince? Uh, prince George was born about the same time as Bella, I guess. He's the he's the son of of. of Kate, you know, everybody like, I don't, I don't even know. And William, listen, I'm so out of touch. I'm really glad they didn't ask me. Uh, what do you think? Because basically they came and said, what do you think? What's your reaction? What's your response? Isn't it awesome? And Megan said something great. And I don't know if we never could find if it made it on the news or whatever. But the bottom line is, it seems as if all the world kind of turns out to celebrate the, the birth of this little prince, you know, there for the royal family. And yet, when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace shows up, there, there's no flash, there's, there's no fanfare, there's no press, there's no celebration, no fireworks. There's not even any room for him in the end. And it's a quiet, cold winter night. In a stable, lay him down in an animal's feeding trough. Nobody there to celebrate. Until the angels finally speak up. Now, I suppose until you really understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do, it all does look kind of foolish and unimpressive. The whole scene doesn't make much sense until we consider who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It looks like, hey, man, wait, I, I mean, we're drawn to the rich and the famous. We're drawn to the strong, the intelligent. We're drawn to the powerful and the politically elite. That's the sort of people we think are going to be the movers and shakers. We read Psalm 98. We read what this king is going to accomplish in the world. And that's the sort of guy we're looking for. There is a massive disconnect between Psalm 98 in Bethlehem, in the minds of most folks, we, in, in, in us, if we're honest, I don't see it. I don't get it. Nobody's there. Nobody cares. And you see, that's part of the problem and part of the, the point, actually. We look at God's grand answer, good news of great joy. We say the rivers are clapping at this. The hills are alive with the sounds of music because of this. We don't get it. It's part of the problem and part of the point. And here's what I mean by that. We want a king who can rule and reign in glory. We want a king who could fix all that's wrong with us, who can make us rich now, do all these sorts of things. We want a king who can come and stomp down our enemies. And we have no clue. We have no clue that the greatest enemy of our joy is not somewhere out there. In Israel's day, it was Rome. In our day, you name it. Maybe it's, I don't know. It's not somewhere out there. It's right here. We don't get it. 
that our sin has separated us from God. The author of life and David in another Psalm, Psalm 16 says in God's presence, in his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The stuff you are longing for, he created to get you to give it to you and fill you with it. It's in his presence. It's found in relationship with him. But in our sin, we said, nah, no, thank you. We, we, we cut ourselves off, Jeremiah 2 says, from the fountain of living water. And we start digging for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And when we try to get water from this one leaves us empty, we just try another. We keep digging and digging until we make a bigger and bigger disaster. Because we want the immediate. We want the earthy. We want the here and now. We don't get that we need God. And we can't just walk back to him because of our sin. We don't get that he is holy and we are not. And to just step back in would mean death for us. I mean, that's part of the reason why God, when Adam and Eve are sent out from the Garden of Eden, he sets this this cherubim there with a flaming sword. It's as if to say to kind of guard the way back as if to say, listen, don't even try You try to make it back here, it's going to mean death for you. So we don't understand that that's the sort of world we live in, that that's why we're as empty as we are. We don't deserve to be full. We deserve to be empty. We even deserve from the one, the only one who could fill us. We deserve judgment and death. But then here, here it is. Here's the the, the good news of great joy. Here's the gospel that God so loved the world. He gave his only son to die in our place. To die in our place. Let Let the cherubim sword and judgment fall upon him. Here now we're starting to get at why Jesus initially looks so unimpressive. Why he comes in so humble, so lowly. Why, why he doesn't have the fireworks and the flash and the flex of the muscle and all these things. We think, why would the king who's come to make all things do and all, and every, all the wrong right enter the world in this way? Well, let me... He's the answer out for you. You could sum it up in a word grace. But here's what I mean. If he is to rule and reign as our Lord and King, he must first offer himself up as our sacrifice and substitute. If he is to remove the curse from us, he must first become a curse for us. I mean, Verse number three in, in Joy to the World. You know, he's come to remove the curse or uh, to let his blessings flow far as the curse is found. How's he going to do that? How's he going to remove the curse? Why do we keep filling and never being able, never, never able to kind of find satisfaction? I mean, that's a part of the curse. God said that you will work and there'll just be thorns. You will work. You'll put money into holes with pockets, as it were. You will have babies, but it will be pain. It will be hard. All this stuff will hurt. It will leave you empty and it will leave you looking for more. It'll leave you waiting for the one who can remove the curse. 
And let his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And he's going to do that. He can only do that by by becoming a curse for us. By taking it on himself. If he is to make us eternally rich in God, he must, for our sake, become poor. If he is to lead us to true and lasting joy, he must first take upon himself our sin and sorrow. So now we're starting to see why he looks the way that he does. It's not because he doesn't have the glory and the power. It's because he's come not to amaze us with the pageantry and the pomp of his earthly life. He's come to offer himself up for us in his death. We are looking at our substitute. We are looking at the one who's come to take it all on himself. All the junk we deserve. No wonder he doesn't seem awesome and glorious. He forsook all of that for us. This is perhaps why it is to these ragamuffin kind of shepherds that the angels first appear. I don't think this is just coincidence. I think there's something that's being hinted at here. These shepherds were there just outside of Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem. Let me read to you what one commentator wrote about this. He says this. It is not unlikely that the shepherds were pasturing flocks destined for temple sacrifices. Flocks were supposed to be kept only in the wilderness. And a rabbinic rule provides that any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be a sacrificial victim. In other words, these shepherds tending to sheep were destined for temple sacrifice. Not the shepherds. They were tending to sheep that were destined for. (laughs) You're not going to kill this. Well, in Jesus, he kills the shepherd and the sacrifice. Isn't that crazy? Let me let me try that again. These shepherds tending to sheep that were destined for temple sacrifice were called from their flock on Christmas night to tend To the one sacrificial victim to whom all these others were pointing. You you with me? They're called off of this little flock of symbols and types. Towards the only true sacrifice that God himself had prepared. The one about whom John the Baptist would say, listen, behold, he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Here again, why not the front door? Why through the back door? Why? He doesn't show up as a lion the first time. He's come to be a lamb. He's come to lay his life down humbly. Become a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Our grief. Let me read to you this written centuries before Jesus ever even made his appearance in history. Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 53, 2 through 6, and he really solves the riddle for us. Why this back door? Why does he look so unimpressive, so underwhelming? He grew up like a, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But here's the key. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We look at him and say, God surely forsook him. There's nothing, uh, nothing to look at here. Look, he's just a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, just a lowly dude. What we're really looking at is the sort of judgment, the sort of pain, the sort of suffering, the sort of humbling that we deserve from God's judgment to our sin. And he's taking it on himself. So that though we mock him and though we say no room here, he could be bringing healing. He could even be, as it were, preparing us room in his own heart. You see, here's the thing that really struck me as I thought about this. The whole message, in essence, is, is about, hey, uh, listen, prepare him room. Let's prepare room for Jesus in our hearts. But the more I dove into it, here's what you realize is happening. Before we could ever make a move at such a thing, we start to realize that God himself is preparing room in his own heart for us. That's what Christmas is. That's what the cross is. It's God's way of getting us back into his presence where there is fullness of joy. Sit at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Are you with me? So, yes, we prepare him room. Yes, we need to open our hearts to him. But the whole thing actually begins with him on the cross, preparing room for you and I. That we can come back to God. Find our home, find our life, find our joy there. So to answer that question, I said I would get to why. Why should we prepare him room? Why should we prepare room in our hearts for Jesus this Christmas? Well, it is simply because in him we have offered everything that we long for. Everything in a much more stable, lasting, even eternal form. So take a few of those examples I worked with earlier. If it's work, right? (laughs) And you're that guy, my life and it, it feels good for a moment and then it's gone once the nobody notices. But in Christ, here's the amazing thing. We are received in God's presence, not by our own performance, but on the basis of his and the resurrection after his death is his vindication saying this. My son was perfect. His righteousness was received. And any who receive him, any who embrace him, received in the courts of heaven as righteous and holy too. My performance, my my sense of identity and worth doesn't go up and down with how I'm doing and what the numbers are saying and whether I'm up above the rest or not. I am in Christ. And therefore, there's stability in this joy. And of course, we're human, so we wander and we struggle. And it does go up and down. But at the end of the day, when we fall, we fall on him. And that is bedrock for our souls. And it will not let us down on the last day. Or if perhaps it was the money thing for you or you find security or status there. Listen, Jesus himself says that moth and rust can destroy those things. There's no stability there and you feel it. That's why you're always checking the stocks or you're always trying to make sure you've got the latest security system. Whatever it is, you know that it's not that secure. 
And at any given moment, it could be gone. And then what? Is your joy in life gone with it? No, not if you have Christ. See, he says, my inheritance is yours. See, death couldn't hold him down. Moth and rust can't get at him. Death couldn't even get at him. And he's committed himself to provide, to protect, to care for you, even through death. I know life is hard. Doesn't mean you're just going to be rolling high on the hill, right? Is that the phrase or is it high on the hog? I don't know. Is it high on the hog? What does that even mean? I don't want to ride on a hog. But you know what I'm saying. It's going to be hard, but he's going to be with you. And there's going to be a fullness. There's going to be a fullness there that you don't get even when you have all the stuff, the big spread on your table. You know that proverb that says something like, man, better is like a little, a few herbs with genuine love and fellowship and relationship with God than to have a full feast but enmity. You just fill your belly, but you've got nothing. He offers what you're longing for, but in a much more stable way. You get the point. When we really understand the love of God for us in Christ, it will melt our hearts. It will open up our hearts. It will set us singing with Isaac Watts here. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare in room in heaven and nature sing. That's what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe that, yeah, before we could prepare room in our hearts for you, you had already been preparing room in your heart for us. We thank you for Bethlehem, and we thank you for Calvary. We thank you for the manger, and we thank you for the cross. We know that you came to offer your life up for us. And though you look unimpressive, though it kind of slips in through the back door and many people will call it foolishness, will call it weakness. We know that in the gospel, we have the wisdom and the power of God. We're not ashamed. But instead, we rejoice in it. That's why we're here this morning. We gather to celebrate what our king has done. And the surprising satisfaction of a backdoor joy in him. In your name we pray. Amen.